get to serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, today we're going to take a, a short break from our study through the Gospel of Luke. And I have uh, a dear friend, an old friend. We go back over 20 years, Dr. Peter Lee. Uh, he is professor of Old Testament at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in D.C. Uh, we went to seminary together uh, a long, long time ago, and he is here today uh, to preach God's Word to us. So Christ Central, can we welcome Dr. Peter Lee? Thank you. I know we can't do that here. That's not politically correct. Uh, well, uh, Christ Central, uh, it is so good to be with you on this uh, Lord's Day uh, morning. And on behalf of my church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, on behalf of Reformed Theological Seminary, where the Lord is calling me to serve, uh, I want to offer a warm and gracious and loving God bless you to all of you as we gather for this day um, of worship. I, I'm so thankful, Pastor Owen, truly, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I know there was a, a, a potential fear of, of, of illness, and praise God, your pastor is healthy and strong, um, but he decided to give me the opportunity anyway to share the word of God with you, and uh, I, I grab these things as often as I get, folks, because I don't get them uh, very often, and so uh, with that, uh, let me uh, turn our attentions to uh, the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God this morning will come from the uh, book of Philippians, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 uh, through uh, 11. Just as a brief preface, um, we, we all, I think, have a, a verse or a passage of Scripture that might mean something very meaningful to us, a little bit more than other passages. You know, the Bible is all the Word of God, I get that. But there are certain texts that, that, that speak to us, that, that made an impact, perhaps, in, in your life. Uh, in spite of the fact that my time, the bulk of my time is studying the Old Testament, it, it, for me, that passage is this one here uh, in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, you really can't be any more of a Christian than what the Apostle Paul describes here, and I reflect on it regularly throughout my Christian life. Uh, and that is what I'd like to share with you today. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the reading of God's word. Uh, let's bow in a word of prayer, ask for the Lord to bless us as we uh, meditate on his word this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. As, as I just read this passage again today, just this very moment, it just speaks to my heart in such a way, Lord, that you probably don't even need me to say anything more. I should just sit down. But Lord, I pray that the words that we, read, uh, that we read here, as we reflect and just share some thoughts, that it will be an encouragement to our hearts uh, to truly see the supremacy that we have in knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Bless your people this day, dear God, and hear our prayers, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start off this morning, folks, by asking you a question. And the question that I have for you is this. Why are people so dissatisfied? Now, during this COVID season, that perhaps might be easier to answer, but it's really just bringing out a symptom, a characteristic of humanity prior to that. Why are people so dissatisfied? Why are people so discontent? Now, unlike the students I work with, I'm gonna give you the answer up front. And here's the answer. You ready for it? Apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot be satisfied in any way. That's it, folks. Apart from Christ, you cannot be satisfied at all. It reminds me of uh, the great 20th century revivalist Billy Graham. As he looked at college students in his day, I'm sure there perhaps are some college students that are here. He said there is one word that could describe college students of the 20th century. Now think about it for a second. What word would you use? The word he used? Emptiness. A lack of satisfaction. Something that drives him to think that there's got to be something more than what this world has got to offer. And think of the ways that we try to find some contentment and peace and joy in this world that we live in. We, we, we try to find it, let's say, in work. If, if, if I just get that job, if I just get that promotion, Students, if you're a college student, you think in your GPA. If I just get that 4.0 GPA. You know, some of us, seriously, we think that maybe if we, it's money if I just win the lotto. Or perhaps it's fame and glory if I just become that YouTube reality star. You know, we do this, and, and truthfully, these are things that have been pursued by humanity for the sake of meaning in life since the days of the garden. Honest to goodness, folks, people are just so uncreative. They just keep looking for the same, uh, looking for it in the same place, and it just can never be found because apart from Christ, you will never find it. And it reminds me of that simple truth: apart from Jesus Christ, you will never find satisfaction in any way. This morning, I'd like for us to contemplate that truth and focus our thoughts once again to fix our eyes on Jesus. If there's ever a time in our, our lives that where we needed to really do that, it's definitely now. So the main message I'd like to share with you today is this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wants his church to find joy, and he knows that this can only be found in Christ, specifically in his death and resurrection. Nothing else will come close. Paul wants him to have joy. Paul wants you to have joy, and he knows the only place where you will found it is in Jesus. 
The application that I hope that you'll gain from today is that you will find joy, you will find contentment, stability, foundation, peace, and that you will find it in Christ. Four points uh, as we reflect on this passage in Philippians chapter three. Uh, first, uh, just this command to rejoice that you find in verse one. And secondly, my charge, this was his charge to me, to work to, for the joy of God's people. And so this is something that I've taken very, very seriously to heart. There are lots of challenges that the church in Philippi was facing that would stand in the way of their joy. They were being persecuted because of their faith. They were being rejected by their own Jews, by their own Jewish people. They were being bombarded by false teachers all around them. You think of uh, perhaps not just uh, the Jews of Paul's day, but think of our day, the challenges that stand before us. I mean, COVID-19, perhaps the most obvious and clear thing that stands within our way. The arguments and disputes that has now arisen amongst God's people on how we should engage in COVID. The sinfulness that is intrinsic within our hearts. These are things that are constantly uh, standing in our way. Because of COVID, we have been isolated. We have been separated. We have not been allowed to gather like this. And we need to gather like this. And it's caused us to be alone and to feel like that no one really cares. You see, there are obstacles that constantly stands within our way. So here, Paul has no problem to say it again. Rejoice. I, I've said it before. I say it now, and I will say it again to rejoice. But this time, there's just a slight little difference. He says here to rejoice in the Lord. If you read previously, he actually doesn't have that phrase in the Lord before. It's implied, but now he says it with explicit clarity. You're going to have to rejoice, and you need to rejoice. You're not going to find it in this world around you. You're not going to find it in the Judaism of our day. You're not going to find it within the secular government. You will only find it in Christ. So therefore, rejoice. But remember to do so in the Lord. So here's his great command, and then he goes on point two to explain where joy is not going to be found in verses two, two uh, through six. The way that he does this is by explaining two different kinds of people who have tried to find some stability in life and did not find it. The first group that he looks at is his old religious people of the Jews. In fact, the way that Paul describes the, uh, the religion here uh, of Judaism is, is rather harsh. Look at verse two. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The, the Greek is interesting here because you do hear this sort of interesting clanging sound. The Greek word for dogs is kunos. The Greek word for evildoers is kalkos ergotos. The Greek word for mutilators is katatome. You hear that k clanging sound that sort of causes some dissonance in your ears as you hear it because that's what the teachings of Judaism is like. It's like a clanging dissonance uh, in your ears. These are dogs, meaning that because of their laws, dietary laws, they are going to starve themselves as opposed to feast on the word of God and the things that they have before them. They are evildoers. They don't truly honor the word of God. They violate it. They are mutilators of the flesh. By requiring circumcision for salvation, their religious practice is more like the Baalism of the Old Testament where the, where, where the priests of Baal were slashing themselves and bleeding to grab the attention of their gods. It is not like the Christian gospel. 
So because this is what the religion of the Jews is like, why in the world do you think that you can find any contentment within it? It's a horrible way to live your life, to think that you have got to merit the, the, the mercy of God, that you have got to earn it, is a terrible way to live. Paul then goes on not only talking about the Jewish religion of his day, he goes on to talk about, interestingly of all people, himself. In verses 4 to 6, because he used to be a follower of Judaism. If, if anyone made an attempt to find contentment in what Judaism has to offer, if anyone did his best effort and, and just reaped the, the benefits of what Judaism has to offer, it was the Apostle Paul. And his conclusion after doing all of that is that you won't even find it there. I know, I would know, and I did not even find it. Uh, look at what he says in verse, three, uh, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence of, in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to list his credentials and, and the, one of the most impressive resumes, impressive CVs that you could read. I mean, this is the type of person that any, you know, Korean mother would love for their daughter to marry is someone like this, someone who was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, I know that sounds weird to, to boast in your circumcision. His whole point here is that even his circumcision was perfectly to the letter of the Mosaic law, not like the Gentiles uh, or anyone else. Of the people of Israel, he says. His ancestry can be traced all the way back to Abraham. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he was part of the elect people of Israel. The Hebrew of Hebrews, he, he uses that great Semitic superlative, the best of the best, that is who Paul was. As to the law, he says, a Pharisee. That is, he was a religious leader with respect who understood the word of God. As to zeal, a persecutor. Now again, I, I realize that sounds weird that he is boasting in the fact that he was persecuting Christians. His whole point here is that he was not half-hearted about it. He wasn't lukewarm. He was committed to the Judaism of his day with conviction, and he lived by that. And then as to zeal, or as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. This was the Apostle Paul. In all of his glory and in all of his pageantry, and all of the pomp and circumstance that Judaism has to offer. And after following all of this, what he concluded is that there is no joy. There is no stability. There is no peace. I mean, Paul really was sort of like the modern man, the modern person of our day, highly educated, very affluent, ritzy, rich, lived the perfect life had everything the world has to offer. He is gleaming the best of the secular community, and guess what? He concludes, no stability, no joy, no satisfaction. He is still discontent. What a miserable way to live if you really think that you have got to merit, that you have got to do something to gain God's favor. That's a horrible way to live. We'll never pray enough. You'll never give enough. You'll never be obedient enough. It just simply is a horrible way to live. Fundamentally, the worldview is what is problematic, and that is what Paul is realizing. Then finally, in verses 7 and 8, he realizes where joy is found, where he can rejoice. He contrasts the religious accolades that he achieved 
And he compares that to the gift of what he has in Christ in seven, verses 7 and 8. And as he ponders these things, as he ponders the blessedness that he has in Jesus, he comes to a startling realization, a, 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 a theological epiphany that everything that he accomplished, everything that he had was meaningless now compared to what he has in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Imagine all the countless hours that he spent studying the Old Testament law, how much he followed it, how much he tortured himself to be obedient. All of that, meaningless. In fact, he goes on to say something even stronger in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see what he does there? He doesn't compare just the things that he has as nothing compared to what he has in Christ. He compares everything else that the world can give to him. Everything that he doesn't have if the world were to give its very best. Even that, compared to what he has in Christ, he says is nothing. In fact, he says he counts them as rubbish. Now, now the, the word rubbish there is, is translated rubbish, but your, your English Bibles are, are really soft-pedaling that translation. Are there children here? Are, are there hearing this? Okay, this is the only time I think you can say this. It, it, it's in the Bible, folks, so don't kill the messenger. The word there really is best translated as poop. It is dung. Rubbish gets at it, but it's not strong enough. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying, that compared to what the best that the world has to offer and everything that the world has to offer, compared to what I have in Jesus Christ, all of that stuff that the world has is nothing but dung. It is nothing but poop. What this shows you is that there is an absolute supremacy in knowing Jesus Christ. There is an absolute stability and joy that only comes by knowing Jesus Christ. Paul knows joy now because Paul knows Jesus. Now this is oftentimes a challenge uh, for us as Christians, especially the highly educated, especially the very capable and the very gifted. We tend to be, we struggle with being satisfied with the blessor and not necessarily just the blessings that he gives to us. Think of a verse like Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things I will give up to you, I will give unto you. Some of us perhaps read this and think, you know, this is a great deal. If I seek the kingdom of God, then I'm going to get everything else. But that's not what Jesus is trying to say there. What he is trying to tell you is for you to seek that which is of the highest priority, the ultimate good. You seek the kingdom of God. I know you need these other things. Don't you worry about that. I will provide that for you. What you need to do is to set your attention Fix your eyes on Jesus, on which is that of the highest priority. Seek the kingdom of God. All these other things, don't worry about it. I will provide for you uh, as well. You see here, it's not that Jesus is a means to a greater end. Jesus is the end. He is the finish line. He is the goal. Think of the book of Job. 
And think of the offense uh, that 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 they, that uh, tempter, that accuser, was making uh, about God. Do you remember that? What was he saying, basically, to Job? Uh, saying to God about Job? He was saying what? If you take Job's stuff away from him, if you take away his riches and his family and his goods and his clothing, then he is going to curse you. Is what that tempter? Do you remember that? What is he really telling God? He is telling God that Job does not love you for you. Job only loves you for the stuff that you are giving to him. You take that away, and Job is not going to love you uh, any longer. It's as if he is saying that, God, you are not worth loving on your own. God, you are not worthy of his attention. He is, you are only worthy as long as you're giving him free stuff. See how, you see how offensive that is? See how blasphemous uh, that is. Folks, let me uh, do this with you. Let, let, let's play a, a short little game here. Uh, let's, let's make a deal. Just pretend that I'm Monty Hall here for, for a minute or two. You all know who Monty Hall was in this show? Anyhow, forget it. Let's just make a deal here, and here's the deal that I'm going to offer you. I will give to you anything that you want. Anything that you want, what, what is it that you want? You, you tell it to me, and, and I will give it to you. Do you want that job? It's yours. You want to win the lotto? It is yours. Uh, you, you want perfectly obedient children, huh? Guess what? It is yours. You get anything that you want and everything that you want. It is yours. In fact, to sweeten that deal just a little bit more, I will give it to you, and you can have eternal life. You can have it forever. You know, a COVID-free world. Now, don't get me wrong, folks. I pray every day for a COVID-free world. But the reality is, is that to rid our world of COVID is not going to bring our satisfaction and joy and peace. It really isn't. But let's just say uh, we, I can do that. I will get rid of COVID for you. But here's the deal. I will give you that. But the one thing that you have got to give to me is Jesus. Will you do it? Will you, will you do it? Anything you want, everything you want, and you can have it for eternity, but you have got to give to me, Jesus. Will you do it? You see, I think as you contemplate that reality, you perhaps start starting to realize that eternal life, that heaven, without Jesus, is meaningless. The eternal kingdom of God without God is meaningless. Yes, it's a, a place where we look forward to where there is no death, no suffering, only joy, no tears, no sorrow. And that's true. But what makes heaven worthwhile is because our Savior is there. You are freed of sin. And that now you can have a, a strong, pure communion bond, a fellowship with your God. That is what makes heaven so worthwhile. And this is the reason why uh, the uh, Bible, when it defines eternal life, does not define it as sort of one day followed by another day, followed by another day onto eternity. It doesn't define the Bible as some cosmic total sum of the universe. This is eternal life that you may know, that you may love the one true God and Jesus Christ, his only son. John chapter 17.
your soul longs after you. That the one thing that I ask, the only one thing, is that I may dwell in your house, uh, O Lord. You see, folks, the Apostle Paul can say it. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you want to know something else? You can say it uh, as well. Your pastor, I guess a week ago, asked the question, what difference does having Jesus in your life make? Folks, it makes all the difference. It's the difference between joy and sorrow. It is the difference between instability and stability. It is a difference between, you could say, death and life. And this is what the Apostle Paul understood. What is it about Christ that made him so worthwhile? He, the Apostle Paul explains that in verses 9 through 11. He gives you the command to rejoice. He tells you where you're not going to find it. He tells you where you are going to find it. And now he wants to end by articulating the greatness, the supremacy of knowing Jesus Christ. Three things about Jesus that he articulates here. First, by faith in Christ, you have his righteousness in verse 9. To be found in him, it says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Folks, this is the gospel of justification by faith alone. This is the fact that God can declare you righteous as if you are in a court, in a court scene. And he sees all of your filth. And what he says is that your filth, your sins, your crimes, your sins have been taken away by Christ. When he died on the cross, he died for you. Therefore, there is no condemnation now for you in Christ. Praise God for that. Anytime you have a profession and confession of sin, the sins you offer have been paid for already. And that's the reason why you can be freed of the burden of guilt and that you can now profess your sins freely without fear of condemnation or wrath because they have been paid for by Jesus Christ. And that Jesus now gives to you his righteousness so that when God sees you, he doesn't see you and your failures, thank God. He doesn't see me. Folks, I'm sure you're outstanding folks, and I have no doubt that you're wonderful people. But we are all sinners, and we fall short of the glory of God. You don't want God to judge you on basis of what you do or what you think. I don't want God to judge me on what he has seen in me or the things that I have declared or what I have done. But praise God, he justifies you and declares you righteous based on the righteousness of Christ who has been given to you and you receive by faith. That is what Paul understood, and this is why there is a, such a supremacy in knowing Jesus Christ. That in Christ, you overcome the threat of sin, of condemnation. Not only that, number two, he says also by faith that you can know Christ specifically in his, re in his resurrection. Uh, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attend the resurrection from the dead. The knowledge of resurrection, folks, think about it. If you're going to know resurrection power, that means you know something else before. You're going to know death. But you see, in Christ, there is no longer the power of death over you. You now know the power of resurrection. And this is the reason why Jesus says in John chapter 11 that I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, extraordinary words you could say. And this is the reason why Paul can say that as for me to live is Christ, 
But to die is gain. In Christ, we overcome the penalty of sin, that is death. And by faith, number three, I can know the sufferings of Christ, verse 10. I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. Fellowship with the whole Jesus, not just in his glory, but also in his sufferings. And to know Jesus holistically is to know the full Jesus, the real Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you will know Christian joy. You will know stability. You will know joy. You will know contentment. You will know peace. Therefore, knowing Jesus, you see, there really is no greater thing. Knowing Jesus, you see, is the greatest blessing of all. Compare that. I challenge you. Compare that with the best that this world has got to offer. Compare it to the riches and the fame and, and, and everything that they can give to you. It doesn't even compare to what we have, what you have in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for our blessed Savior. He who took upon himself our sins, gave to us his righteousness. He who, Lord, was victorious over death to be uh, triumphant in resurrection. He who, Lord, who suffered and went unto glory and calls for us, Lord, to know him in such intimacy that we also can fellowship in his sufferings as well as his glory and thus to know the full Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, these are blessings uh, more than we can perhaps uh, fathom. Something, Lord, that only this can bring to your people. Only this way, only through him can we truly rejoice. And a joy that is greater than circumstances, that can overcome the trials and the difficulties that we live in. Yes, even now. Bless your people, dear God, with this. Remind them dear God, of the joy that we have in Christ and give to them, dear Lord, a, a peace that only comes when they focus their eyes and fixes their eyes on Jesus. Bless your people, dear God. Hear our prayers for we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.